0: This case contains details of violence and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. Sanji Dodge was brutally murdered. Idaho Falls police begin to investigate immediately. DNA evidence is collected, but no match is found. Announced the arrest was made through genetic genealogy and comparative DNA testing. We're excited to be among the first few agencies in the nation to utilize this advancement technology. Can police still use Ancestry.com? No, so this was long before we had heard about familial DNA and and the Golden State Killer and some other cases that have been solved. So Ancestry was sort of caught off guard by this. Um, They say now, because we reached out to them, that police cannot use their DNA database anymore unless there is a court order or a warrant. Um, The database that was used in this case was public at the time. They have shut it down. They have made it private so no one can access it. This week, I'll be telling you the case of Angie Dodge. But first, let's get our PNW Town profile. Idaho Falls, Idaho is the largest city outside of the Boise metro area. And as of the 2010 census, the population was just under 57,000. Idaho Falls is known for being a commercial, cultural, and healthcare hub for eastern Idaho, as well as parts of eastern Wyoming and southern Montana. The area was sparsely settled by cattle and sheep ranchers, and no significant development took place until 1864 when a man named Harry Ricketts built and operated a ferry on the Snake River, which served the westward migration to those on the Montana Trail following the Bear River Massacre of Shoshone Native Americans in 1863. The present site of Idaho Falls was originally known as Taylor's Crossing, after a permanent settler named Matt Taylor. But in 1866, the postmarks indicate the name was changed to Eagle Rock after an isolated basalt island in the river near the ferry was inhabited by approximately 20 eagles. In 1874, two milestones occurred for the area. The first being that water rights were established near Willow Creek, allowing the first grain to be harvested and also the first child of European descent was born to the area. Once the railroad came through, the area's population grew rapidly. In 1895, the then world's largest irrigation canal began diverting water from the Snake River, helping to convert tens of thousands of acres from desert into green farmland, causing the city to begin to flourish. Growing potatoes, sugar beets, peas, grains, and alfalfa in 1949, the Atomic Energy Commission opened the National Reactor Testing Site in the desert west of Idaho Falls. In December of 1951, a nuclear reactor there produced useful electricity for the first time in history. There have been more than 50 reactors built at that site for testing. On January 3, 1961, the site became the only fatal nuclear reactor incident in U.S. history. Due to poor design and maintenance procedures, three trained military men accidentally pulled a single control rod too far from the reactor, causing the reactor to become prompt critical, leading to a destructive power excursion. The explosion was so severe that the reactor vessel propelled nine feet into the air, striking and impaling a man at the ceiling, killing him instantly, and the other two died within hours. The three men were buried in lead coffins and and the entire section of the site was buried. The site has since been developed into the Idaho National Laboratory, a national laboratory operated by the United States Department of Energy. INL and its contractors are still major economic contributors to the Idaho Falls area, employing more than 8,000 people. And now, on to our story. Angie Ray Dodge was born in Vancouver, Washington, on December 21, 1977, to parents Jack and Carol Dodge. She was the fourth child born to the Dodges and their only daughter. She was a gifted child who was intelligent and lived her life with great enthusiasm. She began attending preschool in San Diego, but the family moved to Idaho Falls during her grade school years, where she remained throughout her life. She tutored young children while she was in high school in math and English, and graduated from Idaho Falls High School in 1995 with honors, and then went on to enroll at Idaho State University. She loved nature, and the family's favorite adventure was to go camping. She loved Christmas, and with her birthday happening just days before, her family always celebrated both with a big party. When she was little, she would make special Christmas necklaces for everyone who attended the party and even brought extra supplies to make more if there were additional guests. During her high school years, she drove an older Oldsmobile that her group of friends nicknamed The Boat, and she would fit several friends inside and drive all around town. There were times The Boat would be covered in food wrappers and mud and look like it had been in a demolition derby. Just after high school, Angie traded the boat for a brand new Chevy, and she began working at a beauty store in Idaho Falls. On June 12, 1996, 18-year-old Angie stopped by her parents' house in the evening to talk about life. She expressed how excited she was to be living in her new apartment that she had just moved into three weeks prior on the north end of town, and also talked about how hard it was to grow up and to be on her own. She hugged her mom, Carol, and they rocked back and forth while she rested her head on her shoulder. They both exchanged I love you's and Angie left the house at around 10.20 p.m. to return to her apartment. The following morning, a 911 call came in from Angie's co-workers at the beauty store. They had gone to her apartment to check on Angie after she didn't show up for work that day. They stumbled upon a horrific crime scene. Angie had been raped and stabbed 14 times. The police rushed to the scene and found no signs of forced entry, but it was clear that Angie fought for her life. They were able to recover a pristine male DNA profile. Police began their investigation by collecting DNA from as many men in Angie's life as possible, though this yielded no matches and the weeks turned into months. Meanwhile, Carol Dodge was plastering Idaho Falls with flyers that offered a $5,000 reward for tips leading to Angie's killer. She came through the back door of the police department so often to check in on the case that the officers began to jokingly call it Carol's door. Angie had enjoyed spending time down by the river where a crowd referred to as the River Rats were known to gather and recreate so the police rounded up as many men associated with this group as possible for DNA testing. And although his DNA did not match, one man in that group piqued the interest of authorities. Christopher Tapp was brought in for questioning, and although his DNA did not match, they were interested in him because he had been present with a friend who had been arrested for raping a woman at Knife Point in Nevada. The authorities felt that the crime was very similar to Angie's, And they had theorized that possibly two men had been involved in Angie's murder, just like the Nevada rape. Over the next 23 days, they became laser-focused on Chris, interrogating him for hundreds of hours and administering seven polygraph tests, which he was told that he failed. He crumbled under the intense investigation and confessed to Angie's murder in the following weeks. His confession was that he had participated in the murder with another friend, and that's whose DNA was left at the scene. Although he refused to give names at first, he did eventually when he was offered an immunity deal. If he gave up the name of the killer, he would be a free man. So Chris Tapp began naming names and law enforcement began gathering DNA. The problem was that the DNA did not match any of the men that Tapp had implicated, and with that, his immunity deal was rescinded and a jury trial was set for May of 1998. His confession had included a story that he and his friend had stopped by to visit Angie, who he knew from the River Rat Social Circle, and after arguing, his friend started stabbing Angie while he held her hands down. But at his trial, he recanted his confession and pled not guilty to the rape and murder of Angie Dodge. The judge refused the defense's attempt to have his confession thrown out, and it was admitted as evidence. The defense argued that Tapp's DNA did not match the killer's, but on May 28, 1998, the jury deliberated for 13 hours before finding him guilty. Just shy of two years of the murder, Taps was sentenced 30 years to life for the first-degree murder and rape of Angie Dodge, as Carol Dodge, Angie's mom, looked on glaringly. And unlike many of the cases I have told you about, the case was not closed at this point. Because the DNA at the scene did not match Chris Tapp, and he refused to say who it belonged to, although he did give the name Mike at one point. The authorities still had a killer to find. Over the years, the case grew cold, but not for Carol Dodge. She kept looking for her daughter's killer and was perplexed about Chris Tapp. In particular, why he never gave up the other killer when it would have benefited him so greatly. He had been given the opportunity to walk free before his trial, and she believed, even at this time, he would have been given a deal if he gave up the name. But years passed, and still no name was given. The police had exhausted all leads and investigated every man they could find in Chris Tapps' life, to no avail. A few years later, Carol, who by this point had been widowed as her husband Jack died of heart failure in 2004, was gifted a computer for Christmas and began researching DNA extensively. And in 2009, the DNA of Angie's killer was entered in CODIS, the National Criminal Database, but there was no match. She also found a lab in Florida that could identify the race based on a DNA sample, and when submitted, the results were that the man was 85% Caucasian, which ruled out several people of interest. Carol continued researching DNA techniques and ended up reaching out to a DNA expert who told her about the advancements in technology. And with his help, Carol began pushing the authorities to use the new controversial process called familial DNA that looks for anyone who is related to Angie's killer. What she was asking for would be going into the Idaho database and looking for partial DNA matches, meaning family members of the killer. However, the state of Idaho does not allow for this, so the DNA expert and Carol made an even more controversial suggestion, that the DNA be run through a public database to look for family members of the killer. The Idaho Falls Police Department began looking into the legal aspect of this technique, and in the summer of 2014, detectives searched a public DNA database that is owned by Ancestry.com and got a hit. They found a close relative of Angie's killer, and the police issued a warrant to Ancestry.com to reveal his identity. The man was revealed to be named Michael Usri Sr., and knowing that it wasn't an exact match, they began looking into his family tree. He had a son named Michael Usri Jr., who investigators began to theorize that this might be the Mike that Chris Tapp had mentioned in one of his interviews. While looking into Michael Usri Jr., they began to think they may have found their guy. After a quick Google search had returned a horror film that Usri had created. The film in question featured a convict describing how he stabbed a woman to death, which obviously is Red Flag City. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Let's take a minute to talk about teeth. Between my AM love of coffee and my PM love of red wine, my teeth definitely need some attention to keep them whiter and brighter. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about my new sponsor, Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, you're confused by all of the teeth whitening products on the market. But since taking Smile Brilliant on as a sponsor, I've learned that the number one dentist recommended product is the custom fitted tray. However, they're very, very costly at the dentist's office. That's why the best option is Smile Brilliant. With their lab's direct process, you can have a custom-fitted teeth whitening tray at a fraction of the price without a single visit to the dentist. Using an exact model of your teeth, Smile Brilliant's lab technicians will handcraft your trays to ensure the best possible results. Simply order the system at SmileBrilliant.com, make your dental impressions at home, and return them to Smile Brilliant using the prepaid envelope provided. In a matter of a week, your trays will be back in the mail. As an Upper Left Corner listener, enjoy 30% off site-wide at smilebrilliant.com using code UPPERLEFT, all one word. That code is also good on their other amazing products, such as their Night Guards or electric toothbrushes. Head on over to smilebrilliant.com today. Your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO-level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on-demand, will give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability, and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at www.ee-services.com. And now back to the story. In December of 2014, more than 18 years after Angie's murder, Michael Eustree Jr. answered his door to detectives. He was living in New Orleans when two Idaho Falls detectives brought him to a state police office near the Superdome for questioning. They asked if he had been to Idaho, and he responded that in fact he had been there to visit friends when he was 19 years old. He visited Rexburg and passed through Idaho Falls, which piqued the detective's interest, and they swabbed his cheek for DNA. At this point, Michael wanted to know more of what they were questioning him for, and asked if he needed a lawyer. But once the DNA cheek swab was obtained, they took him home without explanation. Once home, he called a friend in disbelief, and still not having a clue what they were looking at him for, he and his friend quickly figured out with the time frame and location they were asking about, it must have been the case of Angie Dodge. He really got freaked out when he realized how the case seemed to parallel his film. He became paranoid, believing his phone was tapped, his apartment was staked out, and his computer searches were being monitored. But he also wanted answers as to why he was being looked into, and a local newspaper reporter was able to look into the investigation and get a hold of the copy of the warrant the investigators had used to obtain his DNA, and Michael discovered that his dad's DNA had been matched through Ancestry.com. The interesting thing is that the way his dad ended up in the database wasn't the typical spit-in-a-tube-and-mail-it fashion that I would have assumed. He had participated in a genealogy project through his local church that was sent to a public database, a database that was later purchased by Ancestry.com. In the warrant, it also listed the reasons he was honed in on, and it included the fact that Chris Tapps, at one point during an interrogation, said the other guy was named Mike. Along with his horror movie that they stumbled upon... And when looking at Michael's Facebook profile, they found several friends and family members who lived in Idaho Falls. But in January of 2015, Michael received an email from the police stating that his DNA did not match the killer and that he had been officially cleared in the murder of Angie Dodge. Although he was relieved by this, he was angry. That month of his life was spent worrying he was going to prison for a murder he knew nothing about and he decided to make a documentary about this experience. He reached out to Carol Dodge and was surprised when she agreed to talk. She also had ulterior motives for participating. She was fairly certain her daughter's killer was in Michael's bloodline. She had him sit down and write out his family tree from his great-grandfather on down. The tree was quite large, as his grandfather had six brothers, so they had a large number of males to look into. Through their research, Carol and Michael became close, and after hearing the whole story, Michael's documentary changed course to focus on finding Angie's killer. One of his first efforts while investigating the case was looking into Chris Tapp, who had been in prison for Angie's murder since 1998. Michael learned that Chris was now claiming his confession was forced, and that the Idaho Innocence Project was working to set him free. The more Carol Dodge was learning about DNA, the more she questioned Chris's guilt. He had been brought in for questioning because his friend Ben, who also knew Angie, was arrested in Ely, Nevada for assaulting a woman at knife point, so investigators brought Chris Tapp in for questioning. There was zero physical evidence linking Chris to the murder, and Carol began to believe the confession was coerced as well. Chris was only 20 years old at the time of the confession. He was lied to and told that they had irrefutable evidence that Ben killed Angie and that Chris was there when it happened. At first, Tapp kept denying any involvement and he was offered a polygraph test, which he took, but he was told that he failed. He was then promised full immunity, no jail time, in exchange for the truth as long as he hadn't participated in the actual murder. So at that point, he began telling them what they wanted to hear, that Ben was the murderer and he had been present for it. But just hours later, the DNA results came back and they did not match Ben, and the authorities voided his immunity agreement. Carol Dodge was able to view the interrogation tapes and seven never-before-seen polygraph exams that were administered to TAP, and that is what ultimately convinced her that he was not Angie's killer. Her mission changed once more. Along with finding her daughter's killer, she wanted to help set Chris Tapp free. Assisting in the effort was retired Superior Court Judge Michael Heavy, who runs a wrongful conviction project called Judges for Justice, and they agreed to help Chris Tapp after watching the interrogation tapes and finding it hard to believe that it took Chris Tapp changing his story six times and being assisted with clues each time before he finally got the story the detectives were looking for. Along with rules being broken in the polygraph room, it was speculated that the authorities probably assumed these tactics would never be noticed because polygraphs are not admissible in court. Chris was told the reason he was scared was because he was subconsciously remembering that he took part in the murder and they made him believe that the polygraph was an all-knowing scientific instrument that can read the subconscious. Over the years and several appeals, the courts have upheld Tapp's confession as valid and admissible. And because he didn't realize what had happened with the polygraph test was wrong, he never brought them up during the appeals. In March of 2017, Chris Tapp was two weeks away from hearings that he had hoped would set him free. However, the district attorney's office wanted to make a deal. The murder conviction would stand, but the rape conviction would go away, and there would be no probation, meaning Chris Tapp would be a free man, a deal that Chris took. Carol Dodge spoke at his hearing, saying, quote, Go forward without bitterness and without a hardened heart. From this day forward, it's up to you the path you choose. Chris was met with national media on his way out of the courthouse with his mom. She offered to take him to pizza, but he requested steak instead. The press followed them to the restaurant, which he stated was embarrassing because they did not have metal utensils in prison, so he had to relearn how to use them on his steak with cameras watching. Shortly after being released, he got a full-time job, got married, and became a productive member of society. Around the same time in the year 2017, there was major movement within the Idaho Falls Police Department. A new police chief was hired, and one of the rookie officers on the scene of the night of Angie's murder was promoted to captain. The focus for Carol was now solely on finding her daughter's killer, and she focused on learning as much as possible about DNA. She reached out to Parabon Labs, who had made huge strides in solving cold cases using genealogy and public databases. Cece Moore, a prominent DNA expert who you might recognize from a wide array of TV and documentary appearances, looked into the case and decided against working on it because she felt like the DNA was too degraded by this point. However, she had a change of heart after Carol reached out and she decided to begin working on the case. Parabon was able to generate an even more complete DNA profile of Angie's killer than ever before. And that profile could then be uploaded to a large public DNA database called GEDmatch, which is a website that allows users to upload their DNA profiles in search of relatives. And if users opt in, their DNA can be accessed by law enforcement. So they uploaded the killer's DNA and got back a list of people who share a significant amount of DNA with the unknown suspect. And they were able to find a family tree that also had Michael Usery and it was discovered that there was an offshoot branch from over a hundred years earlier that Michael Usury was not aware of. The killer would be somewhere down the line from Clarence Usury. And CeCe Moore was able to narrow it down to six men, after clearing men who would have been children at the time of the murder or who had absolutely no ties to Idaho. Detectives got to work on secretly collecting DNA from all six, following them around for days, waiting for them to discard a drink or a cigarette butt. As they collected samples and sent them out for testing, the results started slowly rolling in. Once the fifth test was negative, they felt like they had their guy. However, his results also came back negative, which was a kick in the gut for Carol and the investigators. After the initial shock, fear set in. The killer was possibly an illegitimate child that had not had a family member submit to a public DNA database and that had never been connected to the Eustree family tree. And they were right. But Cece was able to track him down through an obituary. The obituary was for Helen Darnell, who had a daughter who was married to a descendant of Eustree for a short amount of time when they were very young. After their divorce, a son was born under her new husband's last name, Brian Drips. It appears that the Usury family was never aware of Brian. When that name was brought up with investigators, they realized they had spoken to him in the early days of the investigation because he had lived across the street from Angie. In fact, his name was brought up within the first 25 pages of the police report as an officer had stopped and talked to him while canvassing the area. Drips moved about 300 miles away, less than two months after the murder, but detectives were able to get DNA off of a discarded cigarette, which came back as a match in May of 2019. They picked him up and brought him in for questioning, and he denied involvement for several hours before being told they had a DNA match, and he eventually admitted guilt, saying he acted alone. Two months later, Chris Tapp was back in court, this time to be fully exonerated for the murder of Angie Dodge. He was one of the first people to be exonerated by the way of genealogical DNA testing. Chris Tapp filed a wrongful conviction suit in 2020, but the negotiations have been held up by the city's insurance company, who is stating they don't believe they would be held liable to pay out the settlement. In February 2021, Brian Drips pled guilty to the murder and rape of Angie Dodge. He claimed he was high on cocaine and alcohol and says he has no recollection of the killing. As part of his plea agreement, the death penalty was off the table, or else Drips could withdraw his plea, in which case a jury trial would be held. The sentencing hearing was set for this past April. However, inmates in DRIPS's jail pod at the Bonneville County Jail were exposed to COVID. And although DRIPS tested negative and also had been fully vaccinated, an Idaho Supreme Court mandate is in place that anyone exposed to COVID cannot enter courthouses. And since a life sentence is on the table, the meeting must take place in person instead of via Zoom. Just this past Tuesday, June 8th, 2021, Brian Drips was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. He will be eligible for parole in 20 years. However, his attorneys claimed that due to his failing health, something about heart issues, they expect he will die in prison. During the sentencing hearing, Angie's mother and brothers spoke. Carol said, you shattered our family. You, Brian Drips, deserve eternal hell. This case reminded me so much of the Mandy Stavick case that I covered in episode 12. Fierce mamas, random killings, and DNA to finally set things straight decades later. I can't even imagine being in Carol Dodge or Mary Stavick's shoes. Those women are truly amazing. And also how Chris Tapp was absolutely railroaded. And the fact that Carol was willing to look into other options and question Chris's innocence and eventually fight for his release is also amazing to me. I think a lot of moms would not be able to see past the blind rage and hate you would have for someone convicted of killing your child. And I think the fact that she was able to do so was the ultimate reason her daughter's true killer was brought to justice. Alongside Angie's brother, Brent, Carol has started a GoFundMe called Five for Hope, with the goal of raising money to help other cold cases in honor of Angie Dodge. The funds go to nonprofit cold case foundations and underfunded police departments to test DNA samples and purchase equipment that will help solve cold cases. In November of 2020, funds donated by Five for Hope helped to solve a nearly 40 year old case. Darilyn Johnson was a nine year old child living in Nampa, Idaho in 1982 when she was abducted walking to school. Her body was found three days later. I'm planning on covering this case in the future, so I'll give you a brief summary. But a man was arrested and convicted and spent 18 years in prison before being released after hair found at the scene that was analyzed by a lab was not a match for the convicted man, and it eventually was matched to another man. Funds raised by 5 for Hope aided in the extensive DNA process that ultimately solved this case. If you would like to donate to the GoFundMe, the link will be in my show notes and at my website at upperleftpodcast.com under the Support Victim Causes tab. And that is the case of Angie Dodge. over on Instagram a question about how you feel about genetic genealogy and law enforcement being able to access those databases. And I'd love to hear what my listeners think about it. This week's PNW wine I paired with my true crime is Nefarious Cellars Consequence out of Chelan, Washington. This white blend is 40% Sauvignon Blanc, 30% Chardonnay, 22% Pinot Gris, and 8% Riesling aromatics of green apple baked pear and candied pineapple pop out of the glass with flavors of lime zest stone fruit and ruby red grapefruit this is a great wine for summer sipping if you're looking for a fun getaway you can visit nefarious Cellars right on lake chelan and they even have a guest house you can book on airbnb that overlooks the vineyard and lake chelan cheers and thanks for listening Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the Support Victim Causes tab to find the way you can help the victim's families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at Upper Left Corner Pod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.